Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I am one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. With me to discuss The Mandalorian episode of The Foundling is Gabby Martin and Thomas Harper. Fresh off their live tour, mm-hmm. where were you both this past weekend? We were in Boston for PAX East, um, talking all that? things video games and international humanitarian law. Very nice. So for those who don't know what PAX East is, what is it? Yeah, so PAX East is run by Reed Pop, so the same company that runs Star Wars Celebration, among other shows. But uh, it's one of a small family of cons. So PAX West is the the biggest of them all that uh, really caters to the gaming industry. So it's... Um, the, the way it was described to me by a longtime PAX goer is that E3, which still exists, always used to be the, the sort of industry showcase. So if you were in the industry, that was the time for games to roll out and, and sort of be seen by the public who was not there. You were very lucky if you could get into E3 as just a normal person. And PAX was traditionally the place where the public could get their hands on games for the first time. Obviously, COVID scrambled things, and uh, to hear talk of pre-COVID packs uh, is a very different story. Still was a pretty big show, but um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Just a, a neat, uh, different crowd that I'm used to being at. Gabby, I don't know what your mm-hmm. experience was. but Yeah, very very much the same. It's it's definitely um, similar to, to uh, Comic-Con for any of those who've gone to either San Diego I know the legal geeks were out at WonderCon um, this past weekend as well. Um, so very similar to that, but definitely a, you are very aware that you are in a different industry um, than your traditional uh, comic, um, you know, kind of entertainment guests, those types of things. Um, so similar feel, but definitely a different different world um, and different, different audience. Um, but we had a lot of fun. Good. I'm glad you guys were there and had a good time. Did you record the audio by chance? No, but I'll spring this on Gabby now. I would love to do this as a webinar again because it was <laughs> it was very well received. Yes. And a webinar takes little to no lift. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we had a good time, really good engagement from the crowd afterward. We got swept out of the room very f- in a very friendly fashion, but... Uh, had a number of folks that just wanted to keep engaging and that's always the, a, a sign of uh, a good presentation is you've you've stirred conversation yep that's awesome i'm glad you guys had fun mm-hmm. we were at WonderCon this past weekend yes still tired from the driving we uh <laughs> had two teams since mm-hmm. i'm in the middle of trial prep so it was this issue of steve chu and kathy steinman the uh, husband-wife power couple did a, an amazing job organizing a panel on Netflix's Wednesday. And yes, it was very goth and they leaned into it hard. Uh, <laughs> Steve is a survivor of, pri- of boarding school. So mm-hmm. he was able to talk about, you know, why it resonated with him. And there was lots of legal analysis and we recorded the audio and it was quite entertaining to hear Judge Nahara and Judge Deppen <laughs> strenuously debate whether or not a werewolf 
uh, is a protected class or not. So it was very, <laughs> it, it was cool. It was, it was very cool. <laughs> so mm. then Sunday we did our civil rights in Star Wars, focusing on Andor and Kenobi. And well attended, lots of good uh, discussion. Uh, because of the subject matter from both Andor and Kenobi, it was a little dark in being able to explain how an empire doesn't care about civil rights and how the law can be perverted to do horrible things and having historical examples from the United States and terrible places that we fought against. So there was a lot, a lot to think about uh, for, for those panels. And the audio will be posted soon. So stay tuned. For that. But now, sure, I'm already thinking about Comic-Con. And no, I won't tell you <laughs> what I'm thinking. But we are going to talk about The Foundling, which they're really into double entendres this season. And I'm okay with that for like, what Foundling are you talking about? But there's lots of children in danger this episode. And one of the, the issues is Grogu and Ragnar having a game of darts. Now, it's like paintball mm-hmm. for, for the two of them to do target practice on each other. So you have a kid who looks, you know, 10 to 12. And, you know, the 52-year-old toddler <laughs> deciding to have this game of darts on each other which is basically shooting at each other at point blank range so it's not like there's a lot of yeah it's it's like dueling 101 for children and all around them they're in an environment where crocodile turtles come out of the water to eat people and you have other mandalorians using flamethrowers on each other for training uh there's aggressive fighting which is all practice, which, I mean, you don't want people who are armed getting bored because that that could end horribly, but uh, they really don't secure the area. And they, they have this little duel between the two children. Is that child endangerment? Shall we, let's discuss. Gabby, your thoughts, because you made that smirk of, oh, oh no. <laughs> No, I'm just thinking because when I was growing up, um, when you made the comparison to to paintball, um, that was a, uh, you know, uh, paintball, uh, not BB guns, but there was another type of gun that I can't remember. I did not have them. My cousins did um, that, you know, that was a thing growing up. I mean, I, I obviously grew up in South Florida, so maybe it was a Southern thing more than anything else. Um, but you know, it, they could cause injuries, they could cause bruises. Um, and it was really just kind of practical, moral understanding that like you didn't use them against the smallest cousin versus, you know, size on size kind of thing. Um, but certainly, you know, obviously what we have to consider here is, is Gorgu has force training, right? So he has, he does the most adorable uh, little flip. And I think, you know, Carl Weathers is just obsessed with the puppet and wants to get as many wonderful shots of the puppet as he can. Um, but certainly, um, Ragnar's father could be liable if he had, if, 
um, Ragnar had significantly injured Grogu, yeah, the, he could have been liable for the injuries that his son caused um, to, to Grogu. Um, though I'm not sure that uh, Din would have gone after that, um, given that he's already on shaky standing with the, the convert or the covert. So who knows? I, I am very surprised Carl Weathers has a beach and had no one jogging on the beach. That seems like a really big missed opportunity. He did have a training montage. So he did have a training montage. <laughs> so he, and he did, I think, I think it's, it's superseded by his love of the puppet because we got some adorable walking shots of the puppet, which I am convinced is Carl Weathers just saying like, leave the camera on the puppet. Like they wanted to cut and he said, leave the camera on. Make it work. Just leave it running. (laughs) Thomas, uh, you're the only one of us with children. Yeah, I I was missing the, you talk about the beach, just like the sun glistening off the Beskar armor. That would have been a nice shot. But as they they run in slow-mo, but maybe for another day, another episode. They could do similar musical cues. It just, <laughs> Bill Conte could come out of retirement. Like they could totally just lean yeah. in. So it's it's clear. What's not clear from the, the scene is whether there's a belief that the darts themselves, that the weapon of choice would be inappropriate for the the kids that doesn't seem to be the thing that holds them back um there's not a move like whoa let's let's do sticks instead so it doesn't seem that 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 weapon is expected to cause uh unjustifiable physical pain or or mental suffering it's the the veritable mismatch between the the two kids and This because of the size difference, I think that the weapon choice does matter in the analysis here, because with a a dart like that, uh, you know, presumably based on what we saw, you know, it's kind of geared to a speed where it's in in an impact where it's not going to cause any real physical pain. Um, that kind of levels out the the size difference. I mean, if they if they were striking each other with like melee weapons, then yeah, that would be an absolute different story. Like the the power with which a toddler can swing a stick like that is significant. I have I've experienced that uh, on a number of occasions, but it doesn't match what you know a bigger kid like that could do, and certainly could do to the little kid. So I think the the weapon in this case actually levels out the playing field and but for like reaction speed and and that sort of thing uh there was less danger than there might have otherwise been so my analysis might change if if the bigger kid had picked a different weapon but uh, with paintball at least these paintballs uh, i think they're okay now real world if you're talking like the difference between a nerf blaster and like a Tipman paintball gun, yeah, that's going to make a difference in our world as well. Like, and and even I think in certain circumstances, depending on the age and the experience and the equipment, you could easily have a scenario where even like a uh, a low key Nerf blaster would be a problem and and could cause an issue like this if you're not putting on appropriate eyewear or you know eye protective wear, this or that. Um, 
but I think in this case, it, it's okay. I was a little, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that Din was so quick to just shove him right into the duel. Like, nope, nope, I don't care. Go at it. I wish Grogu had just stopped the paintballs midair. <laughs> you know, what was up with that? He could have. Yeah, yeah it's just neoed it. A, he stopped a flamethrower. Like, if he had done that, like, oh, oh, this is a very different experience. Honestly, that's what I was expecting. But the flip and be- the flip yes. back and then the flip forward and then the pa 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 was fantastic. It was yeah. better than him stopping into midair. Yes, yes, but definitely very enjoyable, very adorable. And we get to look forward to, to more puppet action. So, you know, there there have been some who've commented they need to work with the special effect for the flip. But Gabby, it sounds like you're on board for it. The more it looks like somebody is tossing a puppet in the air, yes. the more I'm here for have it. Have you seen Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what makes it so much better is it looks like they're trying, obviously, to do like the Yoda flip. And, yeah. you know, having grown up with the prequels where it's, very much CGI and you know you have the fight and attack of the clones where it's like Yoda in his prime kind of thing and this puppet just like being thrown haphazardly <laughs> to mimic a flip is the best thing in the world it was fun again as soon as it happens like oh we're doing that <laughs> and I I was expecting the Mandalorian to say to Bo to Catan when she said, did you teach him that? I was hoping he would say, no, Luke Skywalker did. <laughs> Just so she could do the double take. My boy. <laughs> Luke? As opposed to I knew his dad. So uh, you, you mean Anakin. You've got his name all wrong. I, I'm surprised that hasn't happened. That they haven't talked about, oh yeah, he was with Luke Skywalker for like 18 months. Like <laughs> just just waiting there just an easy target so well let's talk about the next easy target that Ragnar gets kidnapped by a giant pterodactyl to be food this is not the first time it's happened they know this is a problem more than one person has been lost to the pterodactyl Is there a duty to rescue him? And probably is there negligence for not having any anti-pterodactyl system in place to make sure that your younglings don't get, you know, eaten by a giant animal. So uh, primary level, there's no general duty to rescue unless there's a statute or a special relationship. Here, you got the kid's dad. And he's in a community that's doing training with him, kind of like being at a school or a church function. And since this is a covert that seems uh, an aggressive church camp or cult, you you make the call yourself, uh, that could be enough to say there's a special relationship. And they could have created the danger because they had no early warning system in place or any anti-pterodactyl device you know 
I would expect a phalanx system, you know, that would be able to take one of these things down when it comes in. But no, they haven't made anything like that. Tom, as a dad, do you expect your kid's school to have first strike capabilities for flying predators? Well, that was the first thing that we checked before my oldest switched schools was, you know, what's your capability to take down a giant raptor? Um, was it sufficient? Yes. Okay. We, we can we can make the switch. Now, I, the the way that this covert functions, I think, matters a bit in the analysis here because it it is more than just. I think the school piece is is apt, but. The way that they raise foundlings, it's a communal relationship, right? So it's this whole interconnected society on a micro level where everyone takes ownership in uh, all of the children. It, uh, it's a surprise, I think, to the audience and probably to Din and some others that uh, Paz reveals that this is his kid because of the way that they they raise all of them. And so you have, and I think that feeds why the covert reacts in the collective way that they do. It's not like, oh, sorry, pause, that's your kid, good luck. It's everybody goes after him. And I think that's a, a at least a tacit sort of customary, if you will, recognition of this duty to rescue the child, that it is the, the the welfare of this child is the community's business, not just the father's business or the family's business. Now that, you know, compare it to, to even a, a sort of close neighborhood uh, or close group of neighbors, like we're really close with the folks that live next door to and, and stuff. But if something happened to one of my kids, there wouldn't be a legal duty no matter how much time we spend with our neighbors and the kids playing together. This is very different than that. And uh, I, I think it's an interesting feature here because you do have some aspects of the law outside of this context. Uh, Gabby and I were, were talking about components of international law that, that are based in, in large part based on customary practices. I think you have an element of that here where the custom of uh, child welfare and the way that that's carried out is such that it it would at least in this society probably have carry the force of law so if somebody in other words to flip it around if you get a mandalorian that's not doing their job and and you know hopping you know switching on the jetpack to go after the kids that would be a real problem like you could get banished you could get deemed an, an apostate etc um you know is that is it held on the same level as like a criminal offense in our system? Maybe, maybe not, but it's a really interesting wrinkle to this particular re uh, religion in society. Gabby, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, you know, this is kind of interesting because the covert functions as a self-sustaining um, government, also a religious organization, like you said, it's kind of, uh, you know, church camp on steroids uh, kind of thing. Um, but I think as well, what you said, Josh, is that, you know, they kind of created this um, situation and that is an area where a duty to rescue can occur when you create um, a danger. And in this case, the main danger they created is knowing 
these large predators are out there. There's one in the water that we've already seen. There's apparently the one they knew about that was this flying pterodactyl. Um, and they're having young children play, will play, train out, you know, they could as easily trained in the cave, right, away from the predators um, or set up an alarm detection system or something. But they had these kids in an area that they knew was susceptible to predators. Therefore, they're putting them in harm's, harm's way. They're creating a harm. Therefore, they have a duty to rescue um, from, from this harm that they've created. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there uh, because they knew. I mean, this wasn't, if it had been the first time, it's an unknown threat. Now you get into the issue of, well, the JAWS paradigm, that if the local government knows about a wild animal that's eating people in a place that, that it normally doesn't go, you know, there are times where there can be liability. Um, Flor Floridian case where that was found. However, it's not always the case with wild animals. There's a reason why this planet doesn't have people living on it. And it's probably because there are giant predators that are higher up in the food chain uh, where people would just be snacks. So I get the the desire to hide, but having your aggressive church camp on Navarro seems like it'd be a much safer plan for everyone and a good pirate deterrent. So, well, now let's, the other thing that, that confused me about Ragnar getting taken, how long was he in the bird's belly? Like, did he spend the night inside the animal? That, that does not sound fun. Did either of you think of that or was this? Just... I, I didn't because this, that I was, well, I was for sure more interested in, in the flashback sequence, but, um, you know, to me, the kind of almost, which I think the present moment action kind of sets up, was setting up the flashback sequence to kind of have a, you know, um, comparison to, but it seemed very kind of Sunday morning cartoonish, you know, the kind of silliness of like when they arrived and were climbing over the rock into the nest, I was like, this seems like something out of a cartoon of just this giant bird with the giant, you know, babies that are there, you know, and it seems very silly and very, you know, it, it, that's always an essential element, you know, can be a great element of, of Star Wars, but it's also like that, you know, it, it almost like it had no timeline to it, even though, you know, it, it, it really, we didn't know how long they were planning to go rescue, how long the rescue took, how, how much battery their or gas or fuel their, their bat, their um, jetpacks have. So it, it really had no time frame to it. So I wasn't thinking of that at all. Thomas? Yeah, I, I really like the cliff scaling scene. I thought this was like classic goofy Star Wars. But, you know, we thanks to Boba Fett, we do have a frame of reference for the, the staying power of that Beskar. So it can't be any worse than the inside of a Sarlacc. <laughs> and so from that... 
from that standpoint, I was like, well, you know, you don't have that much to complain about, kid. <laughs> Go talk to Boba Fett if you've got <laughs> any issues. Yeah, I, I did enjoy the Batman type up the side of the hill. So, again, all of that I enjoyed was like, it's like 12 hours have gone by. They they camped. And before getting him. So there, this wasn't like we have an hour to do this. This was. They had dinner, went to sleep, got up and climbed a mountain and he was still alive. So. But now let's focus to the flashback. And I appreciated the fact that the forge pounding triggers this a flashback just as it did for Din Jordan in back in season one. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was, you know, a nice circular theme for Grogu having his flashback to uh, Order 66. And Gabby, you you did some note taken here on. Yes. Did did uh, Kaloran have a duty to rescue Go- Grogu and just talk us through it? Yeah. So there's there's kind of a couple things here. There's, you know, the did Kaloran have a duty to rescue um, I think, you know, it kind of, and we mentioned this before, of the duty to, to rescue goes um, to whether there's a special relationship, right, uh, to the person who's in danger. Um, and you either have a special relationship or, as we mentioned, if you created the danger, you have a duty to rescue the person you put in danger, right? Um, and so the these are really the only two areas of the law where we see this duty of care or this duty to rescue because normally there's no sort of duty to rescue a third party. Um, And these special relationships that we talk about are things like parent and child, employer, employee, and keeper and guest. Those types of relationships where there's a trust element, right? And in this case, I think with the Jedi who were around um, the... um, the Jedi Temple on Coruscant during Order 66, knowing that there were Padawans in there, knowing that there were younglings in there, they had a duty to rescue um, these children that were in danger because they had a guardian role um, to these children that were in there. So, and that kind of brings up the larger point of the Jedi, especially the Jedi masters who were in the Jedi Temple during Order 66, the Jedi are really functioning, in, and we mentioned this earlier in the school context, right? That was basically a school. It was a religious school, um, but they're functioning in what's called in loco parentis, right? They're functioning in lieu of the parent or in place of the parent. So when we talk about in loco parentis, this is normally comes up in the, t- in the context of teachers. And so teachers owe not just a duty to rescue, um, with that kind of special relationship, but they owe a duty of care to their students to do everything possible, reasonably possible to protect their students from foreseeable harm, injury, and death. Um, and if they fail to protect the students from foreseeable harm, they and the school could be found liable um, and found to be negligent. So giving, you know, Kellerman Beck's, um, he had not only a duty to rescue, but a duty of care to Grogu and any other um, younglings and Padawans he came across um, to protect them and, and bring them out of um, harm from, from Order 66. 
It also raises the possibility others could have gotten out. Because it's a big facility and there could have been more than one way out. So, but again, it was when I was watching this at midnight, going like, that's all my best. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Andrew, this was not his first appearance as that Jedi. First appearance, I think, in in a truly significant moment for the character, sort of like a defining moment for the character. But there was a really, I, I liked it. There was a show, uh, Jedi Temple Guardians. It was a short-lived game show on, it was like a kid's game show on Disney Plus pre-COVID that was very much like Legends of the Hidden Temple. And he, he that was the introduction of his character um, of Ahmed Beck. Uh, and so he was the host along with like a pair of droids and it was fun. He didn't yeah. whip out two lightsabers and slash up troopers, but it was neat. Yeah. I just, like you said, it, it was, you know, obviously not his first appearance in, I don't know if, if we consider, um, the game show canon, but, um, no. <laughs> certainly, um, you know, the defining moment. And I think, you know, as, as a huge prequel fan myself, that was obviously knowing all the stuff that he went through, that he was facing death threats, that he almost committed suicide, um, for simply being in a role, um, that he had no control over that he did not write that he did not, he was just trying to act and take the opportunity to be in Star Wars, which I think anybody would jump at the chance to do. Um, you know, and obviously Jar Jar being a giant piece of my childhood as well. Um, that was validation on so many levels. Um, and, you know, I, I cheered um, when, when I saw that. And, you know, obviously you get, um, I think what's, what's very cool about the way, you know, it plays out is you don't just get Keller and Beck um, but you obviously get a connection. He now has a connection to Naboo, right? Because you have him saying, oh, oh, I have friends who will take care of you. And those happen to be Nabooian guards that are waiting mm -hmm. on the plane to take uh, Grogu out of Coruscant. So it's this kind of like, it's a nod to his character in so many ways. And I just, I'm filled with such happiness and justice for him. Um, you know, he has now an official character poster uh, for the Mandalorian as Keller and Beck. Like, it's just, it's fantastic. And I'm just so, like, so happy for him. And this could explain why Grogu likes frogs. This could. So I, I did see, this is not mine, but I did see this on Twitter that uh, Grogu escapes from Coruscant, goes to Naboo instead of living in Feed Palace. He goes and lives with the Gungans, and that establishes nice. his uh, love of frogs. So that's where he spent his formative years until he ends up um, in the company of Din Djarin. It's not official canon. It's now head canon. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there's a 30-year gap. So a lot could have happened. It's a lot uh, of frog-eating time. Yeah. Was he there for... A short period or a long period like what did they move him around or is he just chilling with gungans for you know 20 plus years so i don't know if we'll i don't know if we need the answer i don't know i'm okay not getting the answer um because i get the trauma and him not wanting to focus on it and just hiding 
But here we go, which raises the next issue of they they bring back the raptor baby raptors as families. So there's been criticism of the Mandalorian because we get kaiju esque creatures that get killed. So because of that, they th- you know people have complained that there's an animal rights quality to this because big animals die. Banthas are used as bait. So Mama Bird gets eaten by one of those crocodile turtle creatures, and as soon as that happens, like oh, what's her kids are going to die now. No. Bo-Katan saved the kids. Did Good she partners. though? Did she? Or was she trafficking them? She <laughs> she could have left them to die. That's season three of Tiger King is Bo-Katan. <laughs> uh, and her trafficking. I'm never going to financially recover from this. <laughs> Just sitting on her throne saying, I'm never going to financially recover from this. <laughs> it's, the, it's like, go watch the documentary Roar about you know, the uh, having a very poorly run uh, you know, lion and tiger sanctuary where people are getting bitten all the time mm-hmm. or mauled. Because or is is she now mother of dragons? Like, what's going on here? Like, we're <laughs> uh, slowly lining up the pieces. Yeah, it's like, okay, are we going to ride those things into combat? <laughs> like, how, how long do they need to grow? What will they be like with a helmet on their head? It also raises the issue of like, how sentient are they? Is this like having pets, like your pet rancor, or or are they actually intelligent? Which means, one, it was hunting people. Okay, that's disturbing. And two, they, it got killed. So there's some awkward questions to think about with, with these creatures. If anything, they now have team mascots. Yay! <laughs> but Gabby, share your share your transporting them legal analysis. Yeah, so, um, and I think we've mentioned this before, but there's a whole host of um, federal laws and certainly state laws um, and even some international laws of of trafficking, uh, moving uh, exotic wildlife um, and also plants. Um, But the first and foremost one is the Lacey Act, which was um, amended in in 1981 and 2008. And that's the preeminent um, federal law uh, that prohibits the importation, exportation, transportation, et cetera, et cetera, um, of any fish or wildlife or plant um, taken in violation of any law, treaty, or regulation of the United States. Um, and it also requires um, when you are shipping uh, wildlife uh, for containers to be properly marked, which I don't think uh, Bocatan's ship <laughs> was properly marked as transporting foreign and exotic species. Uh, And she certainly didn't go through any customs or paperwork uh, to identify herself as transporting those. Those were quite a surprise when they walked off um, the ship. So I think she is in violation of several, um, she's trafficking in in exotic animals uh, with her transportation of the baby raptors. Thomas, do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, interestingly, so the the Lacey Act is quoted in in our notes here. So this is an act um, just just talking about the transport of or exportation, importation of wildlife. The Lacey Act also applies, oddly enough, to well, not oddly enough, but to to flora. And the most significant, this is like kind of, I'll, I'll get where I'm going in a second, but the most significant fines under Lacey have been related to, to plant importation or smuggling. And uh, the, the two companies should be pretty familiar to a lot of Americans that got hit with those fines, one being lumber liquidators uh, that got hit uh, about 10 a little less than 10 years ago for a massive fine for lumber smuggling and then Gibson guitars um, who were, were targeted, not targeted. They were uh, investigated and ultimately paid a, a large fine for um, smuggling, I think Rosewood and uh, Ebony. So in any event, but there are two connected uh, statutes that, that might have played here. And I, I say might because we're trying to bootstrap on like a lizard-like raptor creature in the Star Wars universe to something that's like alive in our world. And I just thought of like migratory birds. And so you have um, a couple interconnected laws, the the uh, just beautifully named Weeks-McLean Act, of uh, which uh, protects migratory birds from 1913, and then a Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918. These two laws really came about in in response to the mass killing of birds and just importation illicit importation of feathers and whatnot for fashion purposes and there was a real push as a lot of these species of migratory birds got pushed to extinction uh to regulate it and so that's that gave birth to hunting licenses and seasons and just the the sort of modern day things that we're used to seeing um around these sort of things so i don't know if anybody is really in a position to hunt these type of birds but at least to the extent that they're at all endangered or whatever you could have a a law like this that would protect them and so the the, the larger point being that we have laws that have often been shaped by uh, just the, the public consciousness around loss of species I don't think you're going to see a push over the loss of one like giant bird's mother to, to protect something like that. But if this is at all a, a rare species or these, these chicks, if you will, um, there's got to be a better word for them. Um, gigantic hatchlings are, are at all rare. Then you could see a law like this being applicable in some way. Yeah. The hatchlings are, bigger than a human being i just want to see them ride these things like full grown this is now a um a house of dragons situation where i need these dragons to grow up and bond with these mandalorians and ride around and cause chaos if mandalorians used to ride a mythosaur it would make sense that they could ride a raptor this is true so, so make a little helmet for them and like game on let's do this yeah. so uh, i don't know how they speak the creed but we'll figure that one out later but there's <clears throat> fun episode fun episode i i don't have the same concern about trafficking 
because my reaction is they would have died. Like True. they they need to they need to be fed. They can't care for themselves. This was uh, an act of mercy to make sure they had a chance of life, mm-hmm. as opposed to they're endangered. So I'm going to leave them to die. Like that's defeats the purpose of having laws to protect animals if it if it will kill them instead. So, uh, but here we are, you know, <laughs> fun episode, and Bo comes clean to the armor about she saw a mythosaur. I think the armorer thought she might have gotten hit in the head at some point while on Mandalore, like suffered a concussion or something. It was just like the armor's equivalent of like, yes, yes. We we're all sure you saw a mythosaur. I would have preferred the discussion to have gone along the lines of not sounding like a crazy UFO eyewitness. <laughs> you know i mean bo almost says i know what i saw like it nearly goes Mm -hmm. to that extreme it should have been when i was pulling dincharn up from the bottom of the living waters i passed the mythosaur a giant eyeball opened at me (laughs) yeah if she had been a little clearer with like what she had seen um that might have had a different reaction as opposed to sounding crazy uh that like she had gone on a vision quest and had seen a mythosaur in her you know in her third eye no it's (laughs) i screamed i don't scream (laughs) i've seen horrible things i screamed at this so that that would make more sense for her uh, and being able to explain it now, whether or not they take any action, because this is validation of a religious tenet, like that's foretold. So you, it's like the legend's true. We could go back, like they could take that position. So, but uh, we'll find out within eight hours if that's going to happen or not. So. Um, stay tuned, I guess, uh, for, for sometime before the end of the season. I'm sure we'll see more of a mythosaur. Did you, either of you spot any other issues? It did not, but I was just very, very happy with all the uh, prequel callbacks uh, from obviously Keller and Beck um, and Ahmad Best uh, to the Nubuian guards to even uh, what you had mentioned, Josh, which was uh, the, the mama raptor being eaten by the giant uh, creature, uh, to me, that was a perfect callback, uh, to Phantom Menace, uh, to, uh, uh, Gwai line that there's always a bigger fish. Um, so if you did not catch that, that was, I, I am hopefully that was a Easter egg by the, the one Dave Filoni who absolutely loves Phantom Menace. So, um, I'm sure that was very purposeful. Oh, clearly. It's like everything that they do has intent and design. So like they're not making it up as they go. Uh, Thomas, any other thoughts? No, not about the episode. We'll get the next one in here in a a few hours, uh, at least our time on the 
the East Coast. To all of you who are going to Star Wars Celebration next week, have a blast. I will. I think the three of us will be sitting with FOMO. At least I'll speak for myself on that front. But uh, I hope to see some really cool stuff that we'll get to unpack in the coming days. Absolutely. So for those who have crossed the Atlantic, go have fun. So it's nice to see pictures from folks who are already there. They've adjusted to the time change. Uh, they're not they're Some of them are confused with the rainy weather. So <laughs> get used to it. You'll <laughs> so, be inside. Don't worry. Yes. <laughs> it is London. So uh, enjoy the London rain. So everyone, wherever you are, stay safe, stay healthy. And of course, stay geeky. Take care now. <laughs>